we hear very clearly from Jesus that if we don't have faith like a little child, we can't enter the kingdom of God, and that we really need to recognize the faith of, of even small children. I think also we need to recognize the, the role of small children in witnessing to their friends and in um, speaking for Christ in their social context, even you know young as they are. And so to me, the, the, the best way that I can prepare my children for life as an adult Christian it is to actually equip them for life as a child Christian. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca is the co-founder of Vocable Communications and former vice president of content at the Veritas Forum, where she spent almost a decade working with Christian academics at leading secular universities. Her first book, Confronting Christianity, was named Book of the Year by Christianity Today in 2020. Her newest book is 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity from Crossway. Today, Rebecca and I discuss what it looks like for parents to prepare their teens for life in a post-Christian world. She reflects on kids' propensity to ask hard questions and why that's a good thing, highlights some of the key challenges to a Christian worldview facing young people today, and offers advice on how to protect teens from harmful influences while at the same time encouraging them to form their own opinions and convictions. Let's get started. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about what it looks like to raise kids in our world today, uh, a world that I think at least in the West, maybe particularly, has often been described as increasingly post-Christian. Um, and there's a lot to that. Uh, and you have a lot of thoughts on sort of the way that the, the Western world is characterized with the relation to Christianity and religion. But before we jump into all of that, I wonder if you could just share a little bit about your own family and your own kids. Sure. Yeah. I, I feel uh, when I'm asked about raising kids, I feel a bit like someone who stopped halfway through a marathon and asked, what's it like to run a marathon? I'm like, I, I, I only <laughs> know uh, ages zero to 10 so far. Uh, my eldest daughter is 10. Um, the second daughter is eight. And then Luke, who is just turned two, who um, was a surprise to everyone other than me and my husband, Brian. <laughs> People thought that we were done and, and we didn't think that we were. And he's, he's been a, a delight and an awful lot of work. Yeah. Well, and uh, that's the thing. You, you say you only have kids up through the ages of zero and 10, but so much has happened in the last 10 years, culturally speaking, in our world, especially in, in the U.S., um, and that kind of leads to my, my question. My first question is, uh, as you think about what it was like to grow up as a kid, uh, obviously you uh, grew up in the UK, most of our listeners grew up in the US, but even with that difference in background, um, what do you think's changed since you were a kid, since uh, maybe a lot of our listeners were kids growing up versus where we're at today? And then I, I want to know what you think is the same as well. Mm, mm. I think a lot of that, as you point out, depends on on where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in London in a, a, broadly speaking, Christian home, but most of my friends from school were not believers. And and the high school I went to was a very academic, very uh, secular high school, despite being uh, dedicated to the Apostle Paul. It's called St. Paul's (laughs) Girls' School. 
uh, and we sang hymns in morning assembly. Wow. Uh, which was usually me singing very loudly while 650 other girls kind of muttered into their, <laughs> into their hymn books. <laughs> um, so, so I guess I grew up with the expectation that being a, a Bible-believing Christian was a, a, a very odd thing to be amongst my peers and that I would need to explain my faith to friends. Uh, I, I, from an early age, wanted friends to become followers of Jesus as well. Uh, and so was you know, talking with them about all sorts of hard questions and, and challenges that were keeping them from, from considering that. Um, so whereas it's absolutely the case that some cultural tides have, have shifted and, and certainly and my husband grew up in, in Oklahoma City, for example, and so he had a very different experience than I did growing up. Um, and, and there have clearly been some significant changes in terms of um, public opinion um, on questions, for example, gay marriage, um, increasingly now questions around gender and, and um, transgender identities. Um, so, so there are real shifts that have happened in the past sort of 10 or 20 years. But there's also, at least in my experience, quite a lot of continuity. I, I, I felt from the first like a, a Christian amongst many non-believers, uh, with knowing that I had very different um, ideas about the world than they did. And, and I still feel that way today. Um, one of the interesting things to me processing with my husband, again, having grown up in Oklahoma, was when he moved to Cambridge in the UK as a, as a grad student. He was both kind of um, unsettled and encouraged by his experience because on the one hand, whereas in Oklahoma where he'd grown up, even if people didn't go to church themselves, they they kind of thought well of you if you did and, and respected that. And he moved to a city where going to church as a serious Christian was considered truly weird. Yeah. Um, but he also found that when he did go to church, everyone there really was there because they love Jesus, not because this is what people in this place tend to do. Um, and in some ways he found that more encouraging than a cultural environment where a lot of people honestly probably thought that they were Christians, whether or not they really knew who Jesus was and were really um, trying to follow him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point that there's, I've heard people describe the difference between Europe and, you know, as a general, uh, uh, place compared to the U.S. It's just they're, they're kind of a few years ahead of the U.S. in some ways in, in some of those trends, whereas, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of uh, change in the U.S., uh, maybe uh, a winnowing of that cultural Christianity that used to be the norm, uh, and we're kind of catching up to places like the U.K. Yeah, and I think as, as I reflect on what it means to, to raise my own kids and to be part of the broader Christian community here, raising our children as a church, I, I strongly believe that the Christian ideal is not the nuclear family. It's actually the, the local church uh, as the, the primary family unit for Christians. So I always want to think, you know, both sort of within my own biological family, but also more broadly than that in our local context. And I think there's there's a mistake we can sometimes make as as Christian adults, which is to think that our job is to protect kids from the hard and difficult challenges that they may face in, in terms of uh, being a Christian among a, a, a less Christian peer group, um, and that we need to make sure they're not exposed to, I don't know, dangerous ideas that, that might conflict with what we're telling them at home. And I actually don't think it's our job to protect them. I think it's our job to equip them, which is a very different thing. Um, I'm just reading through the Harry Potter series again with my kids, and we just finished Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, where Dumbledore's army is formed. 
And Dumbledore's army is this group of, uh, of school kids who take it upon themselves to, to learn defense against the dark arts because they know that there are real threats out there and uh, other people might consider them too young. In fact, they're being told by the school authorities at the time that they're too young to be doing any of this. But they know that they're not and they, they need to get involved in that. And I think just as um, you know, we, we hear very clearly from Jesus that if we don't have faith like a little child, we can't enter the kingdom of God and that we, we really need to recognize the faith of, of even small children. I think also we need to recognize the, the role of small children in witnessing to their friends and in um, speaking for Christ in their social context, even you know, young as they are. And so to me, the, the, the best way that I can prepare my children for life as an adult Christian is to actually equip them for life as a child Christian. And so um, to give them, you know, appropriate apologetic tools when talking with friends and, and ways of sharing the gospel and, and to have them know from, from the first that that they're not necessarily in the majority and, and they can't expect everyone to agree with them, which doesn't mean that, that Jesus is not truly Lord of all and that what we're telling them at home is somehow, you know, just our family's thing. But because... I want them to I want them to go on as they've they've started um, and to be properly equipped to yeah share the gospel with friends from the first and and answer hard questions from, from the first. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of parents wrestle with the tension of on the one hand we want to protect our kids from things that are that are truly dangerous to them that could uh, in some way lead them astray could influence them in ways that um, they're not prepared for. But on the other hand, as you're kind of saying, um, we don't want to shelter our kids so much that it's actually ultimately counterproductive. It, it creates this stunted faith that they're, they don't really understand or they don't really own themselves. So, so I guess, how do you think about that? Are there issues, have there been issues or topics with your kids that you have decided to hold off on raising with them or that you you kind of have been very judicious in how you've discussed them with them because, you know, they're too young or because they're just not ready for some reason? Yeah, I, I think the, the issue that I've only recently started talking to my girls about, and they're, they're 10 and 8, so, you know, my two-year-old is not yet at a comprehension level to, to grapple with many of these things. But with my 10 and 8-year-old, I until recently had not told them about abortion, uh, simply because it's it's just so um, sort of intuitively troubling to a child as 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 an idea, um, and we we have started having some more of those conversations uh, as as we drive down the street here. We we pass yard signs that have the the kind of twenty twenty creed of, of you know Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights, um, etc. And and, and what I've wanted to do is rather than um, sort of ignore those signs or, or tell the girls that, you know, it's all too grown up for you to engage with. I, I've actually wanted to work through each of those things and say, OK, this is what we as Christians strongly affirm here. You know, we strongly affirm that the black lives absolutely matter because they matter to Jesus. Um, and, but then I need to work through the other lines in that statement and say, OK, you know, what does love as love mean in our culture today? What are people trying to say there? Um, uh, what does, when people say women's rights are human rights, what do they actually mean by that? And so I, I've started with them, you know, we've been talking about some of those those more troubling ideas because, um, you know, in order to answer their questions meaningfully about what's going on in the world, I, I need to. Um, so, so that's something I've, I've held off on. 
when it comes to to the cluster of ideas that I think Christians often feel least comfortable talking to their friends about, which are questions around sexuality, I've actually tried to talk to my kids about those really from the first. And one big reason for that is that I think if we don't talk to our kids about sex, actually in all you know in a sort of more holistic way, firstly we can't really read the Bible with them. I mean, there's so, so many times as I read through the scriptures with my kids, you know, they say, you know, mommy, what's a prostitute? Okay, I kind of have to explain what that is and for, for them to understand this situation. Or mommy, you know, what is this? What is that? Um, but, but also, and, and more positively, I guess, because it, if, as I truly believe, that the whole point of God creating us male and female and of there being such a thing as sexuality and there being such a thing as marriage, if the whole point of that is for us to get a glimpse of what it means for Jesus to love his people, um, then I'm, I'm actually robbing my kids of some of the basic building blocks of a, a theological understanding of the world mm. if I don't yeah. talk to them, even in, in age-appropriate terms, about what sex is. Um, and so I've, I've intentionally done that. I mean, just as in the scriptures, we, we see God portrayed as father and, and, you know, my kids know they have a category of what that means because they have a, a dad and thank God they have a really good dad. Um, so I also want them to know what it means when the Bible talks about God in the Old Testament as husband to Israel. And when Jesus just declares that he's the bridegroom um, in the gospels and, and when um, Paul tells us that marriage is a, a little scale model picture of Jesus and the church in, in Ephesians 5, I want them to know what this means, and I, I want them before they have, you know, awkward or intriguing conversations with friends on the school playground about sex. I, I want them to to know what this is really about at a fundamental creational level, and 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 for that to be the centre from which we then explore all the complex questions around, you know, what do Christians believe um, about appropriate sexual behaviour um, versus not. So. I guess in some ways, um, you know, maybe slightly kind of countercultural from a Christian perspective, but I haven't wanted to protect my kids from a good thing that God has created and that he's created in order for us to understand more about him. Um, and in age-appropriate ways, I wanted to talk to them about those things from an early age. Yeah. Well, and that raises an interesting kind of distinction that I think some Christian parents maybe wrestle with in that they would be all for... Uh, presenting a biblical worldview on these issues. Um, let's take sexuality as as kind of the example here. Um, yes, let's let's teach our children what the Bible says about these things, what God's vision for these things is. Uh, but the issue is maybe it gets a little bit more tricky when it comes to then also presenting or talking about at an early age some of the other, I think from a Christian perspective, distortions of that that biblical picture that we get of what this is supposed to look like. And so I guess I wonder there, how do you, how do you balance uh, your role as a parent? How do you think about the role of the Christian parent in uh, teaching positively what scripture says about some of these issues, about the, the God's design for these things, uh, versus um, kind of laying out all the cards on the table? I, I think that's one way that sometimes these issues are discussed is like, you know, your job is to present your kids with all the options and then they can kind of pick and choose what they think is best for them. And that's some, sometimes the way it's presented. Uh, how, how do you think about that question of even like indoctrination, that idea of, of teaching our kids what to believe, what's right and wrong? Yeah, I, I think for, for me, 
the two go hand in hand, actually. Um, the, before I would have any conversation with my friends uh, about why um, gay marriage is not something that Christians can um, affirm for, the, for themselves, uh, I, I need them to understand what marriage scripturally and, and theologically is. Um, and I, I, in order for them to be able to participate in the broader society that they're, they're part of today as well, I mean, they're, they're hearing at school, my, my kids are in a really good local public school, um, and they're, they have, they're having a really fantastic sort of multicultural experience. A lot of their friends, like me, are immigrants, um, but many of them coming from all sorts of different parts of, of the world. And it's actually lovely to see the the number of Christians whom God has placed in, in their sphere, um, often from uh, places like Ethiopia and Eritrea um, and people whose parents have immigrated from China, et cetera, et cetera. So there's so many you know, wonderful things about them being um, in, in this public school setting. Um, and and they're, they're also very much, you know, hearing from, um, they've got gay teachers, they have, um, you know, friends whose families will be, um, you know, raising them with other ideas um, that, that, that we have about these questions. And so if, if I'm not talking to my kids um, about the, the love is love mm, sign, yeah. uh, they're only hearing from other people. Right? It's not, I'm not actually kind of quote protecting them from anything. All I'm doing is, is letting other people form their ideas rather than me being part of that conversation. Um, and I, I think it's also important to recognize that from around about my younger daughter's age, probably around eight or nine, I was becoming aware that I was attracted to women. Um, or older girls, typically. Uh, and people will develop at different stages in terms of, of their, their patterns of attraction. And obviously, you know, kids just mature at very different ages. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that my experience is necessarily normative. But as, as my kids go through puberty, I want them to understand the kinds of things that, that others might be experiencing, but also the kinds of things that they might be experiencing. Um, I, I don't want them to feel like, oh my goodness, like I have no category for what I'm feeling here or, or you know, how I'm experiencing the world. Um, I, whatever their patterns of attraction, I, I want them to know um, that they are known and loved uh, by Jesus first and foremost, and also by, by me and, and by their dad. And that I want them to know that all of us as Christians need to learn to um Say, say no to many of our desires in all sorts of areas of, of life um, as followers of Jesus. And I want them to have that kind of mental and theological and emotional equipment actually before they need it. Uh, I, I don't want to just be talking to my 16-year-old when she says that, you know, for the last five years she's been um, struggling with attraction to her best friend and she didn't feel like she could tell me. I would much rather be on the front end of that conversation. And, and equally, I don't want... Um, to be having a conversation with my 16-year-old about an ongoing pornography addiction because I had never had those conversations with them earlier. Just, so I, I guess I see this as all part of a, of a broader fabric of wanting to equip my kids with what they need before they need it rather than afterwards. And for Jesus and for the gospel actually always to be central to that. Uh, and I think, again, that's a mis mistake we can sometimes make in thinking about you know whether it's discussing these issues with our kids or even with non-Christian friends, well, I want the gospel to be central, and so I don't want to kind of get drawn into conversations about sexuality. As far as I can see from the scriptures, 
the gospel is right at the center of a Christian understanding of sexuality. So if we're having those conversations correctly, they should be pointing us to Jesus in the church. Mm. Well, and it seems like one of the, the big things you're emphasizing is just the importance of being proactive with our kids rather than purely reactive on some of these issues, even though um, it might feel uncomfortable at times. It might We might feel like, I don't exactly know how to have this conversation. Uh, but I think that gets to the uh, broader thing that uh, I know I'm I'm finding with my young kids is just that they often know more than you think they know. They're they're kind of exposed to maybe things that you didn't realize, and that, I think that only increases as they get older and have you know friend groups and uh, and so one of the things you say in your book is that uh, kids ask the hardest questions of all. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I wonder if you could unpack that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we have a practice as a family of of doing family Bible time every every evening. Um, and in that, in the course of that, we we walk through a book of the Bible, typically sort of little piece by little piece. Um, and we had you know a particularly challenging conversation the other day because we were in Exodus twenty one, um, which not long after the Ten Commandments, God uh, gives His people laws about slavery. And I personally had really wrestled with this passage and I'd taken some time in advance of walking through it with my kids to just wrestle with it myself. Um, And at the end of a a long and interesting conversation, um, my daughter, my 10 year old said, why didn't God just say in big capital italic letters, (laughs) no slavery? Right, right. You know, so, so, so she has exactly the same questions that, my peers have and that that I might have. Um, my eight-year-old will frequently ask, well, how do we know how do we know the Bible is true? Where did the Bible come from? How do we know that Jesus she has a, a particular <laughs> question about uh, how do we know that Jesus didn't make it so that it didn't hurt when he was on the cross? Like how do we know he didn't do a miracle so that he wasn't actually in pain? Which is not a question I've ever heard from somebody before. I mean, I think sometimes they kind of they ask questions a little bit um, yeah. counter to our intuitions. It's never occurred to me to ask that particular question. Um, and it probably honestly wouldn't occur to a, an adult friend of mine to ask that particular question. doesn't mean it's not a valid question. It's something that you know, we need to, to talk through. But because kids don't make all the assumptions that we make necessarily, they'll often ask questions in a, in a different and, and sometimes more difficult way. Um, and it's important for us to be able to engage in those conversations. I've often found, even with my young kids, uh, my two oldest are seven and five, and even at that, those young ages, they're sometimes asking questions that uh, there's a, a logic to them, and there's even a, a an honesty to them that is maybe even lacking in in the way that uh, adults might think about things or even be willing to ask things. I think like that question about uh, Jesus on the cross feeling pain, you know that that sort of that that intuitively understands something about well, how he's so different from us and how he could do that, and it kind of you know, it kind of tries to get into something that maybe would invalidate in some way that experience that he had uh, in a way that maybe the rest of us are kind of happy to just to, to not ask. Yeah, and I think what's wonderful as well is that the more that we have these kinds of conversations with our kids, even at a young age, the more they're able to process theologically for themselves. Um, I remember a, a delightful conversation I had with my my ten year old when she was about five, and we were driving down the street, and she said, "Mummy, could Jesus make it so that one side of the street jumped up and the other side jumped up, and, and it walked like it had legs?" And I said, "I said, yes, darling, Jesus can do anything." <laughs> and she said, 
Jesus can do anything except break his promises. And I said, yeah, that's a, you, you're absolutely right. I was wrong to say Jesus can do anything because indeed Jesus cannot take his, break his promises to us. And just to see her start to process with the, the theological equipment that she's been given from the scriptures and from conversations with mm, me and her dad, yeah. um, for her to be able to piece things together, I think, okay, wow, Jesus could do this extraordinary thing that I've just sort of thought of here. But I also need to reckon in the fact that, that God is always faithful. And how does that play into this situation? Um, and I find even even a depth of theological insight that kids can have. Like we, um, another car ride conversation, we're talking about the, the song, Blessed Be Your Name. Don't know if you're familiar with that one. Um, and they asked me, you know, where does this song come from? And I said, well, it's actually drawn out of the book of Job. They said, what's the book of Job? I gave them a two-minute sketch of the story of Job. And I said, um, I said, what do you think we learned from the book of Job? And my daughter, who was six at the time, said that God is God and we are not. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's an, ex- an excellent summary of the book of Job. God is God and we are not. Wow. And so I think we need to be, we need to take our kids more seriously in many ways. Um, and I think we need to recognize that the society in which we live, where, where kids are given very little responsibility uh, and where they are, are protected in many cases, I mean, of course, there are many, I mean, I, as, even as I say this, I recognize how privileged I am, but I can say this about my children. There are many children across the U.S. who don't have any of these sorts of protections, but um, the, the, we can at least attempt to protect our kids from the idea of death, for example. Um, my kids have only recently known people who have, people they've been at all close to who have died. And in most cultures and in most parts of history, no child would get to the age of five without having known numbers, numerous people they really loved who died. And, and we think, well, that's, death is much too frightening an idea for kids to really be able to grapple with. Well, I don't know that it is. And if we, if we don't talk to our kids about death, how can we explain the gospel to them? So I think always, I guess I, I would tend to err on the side of, of talking more um, and seeing less, less as a process of protection and as more as a process of equipping. Mm. Well, and that that is a good segue into uh, just a question of what role does the local church play in shaping young people today? I think we've talked a lot about how parents, you know, biological or uh, otherwise parents, um, obviously have a front lines role to play in in shaping their children and preparing them for the world. Um, but what role can the church and others in the that community play in this conversation? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I think there we can make two mistakes. The first mistake we can make is to say, uh, when I take my kids to church on a Sunday and I hand them off for children's church, that that is the primary place where they're going to be getting spiritual input and instruction. And so I, as a parent, like I've done my job, if I've taken them to church and I've sort of released them to the, the children's or youth minister um, that's in charge of things there. Uh, in fact, I think from the scriptures, we see parents have massive responsibility to raise our children in the Lord. And that um, that often looks messy. I mean, as I say, we have, you know, 10, 8 and 2-year-old. And so when, when the 2-year-old joins in with family Bible time, which sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, it can be real chaos. I mean, my, my husband was was playing our little song for Bible time the other day, and he said Luke was just shouting and shouting in the background. <laughs> and he stopped playing and he turned around and he said, Luke, can you stop shouting? And the girl said to him, Daddy, he's singing. And he hadn't even realized this little two-year-old is actually singing his heart out really badly. (laughs) 
to the right song but was kind of in the wrong yeah. verse. You know, he was yeah. trying. So it, it doesn't it, it doesn't look Instagram worthy. Um, but the, there's a lot that we need to be doing in the context of, of our sort of day-to-day interactions with our children's parents that is shaping them in the Lord. But I think the other mistake we can make is to say it's really only our job to raise them in the Lord and no one else in our community makes a difference to that. And what we, we try to do, it's been, it's really painful. I think one of the ways in which the um, the global pandemic is, is painful is because it's it's shut down some of these things or, or forced us to kind of have to think in, in different ways about them. But we host a community group, um, which is predominantly single people. And one of the things I love about that is that our our kids get to frequently interact with um, proper grown-up single Christians. And I want them to grow up with a real vision for what that looks like. I never want them to think that I'll only be proud of them if they get married and have children. Um, I never want them to think that that being single-heartedly serving the Lord as a single person um, is is in any sense second best. And so I can't model that to them. I can say it to them, but they can't see it in me. They can see it in in the friends in our community group. Um, they can also see a racial and cultural diversity in the amongst our, our, our Christian community. And, and that is something which, in many people's minds, is a sort of um, modern progressive idea. Actually, no, it's a biblical idea. It's it's Jesus who calls people from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him. Um, we see even from day one, as the spirit is poured out at Pentecost, we, we see people um, from all sorts of countries and backgrounds, including um, Egypt and Libya and Iran, um, becoming believers from the very first. And so this the kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural um, vision of Christian community is something which, thankfully, you know, thank God, given where I live, there are people from you know all sorts of um, places and, and backgrounds uh, are here, so that so my kids get to glimpse a little bit of, of what that looks like, um, and I think they need to to know that they are brothers and sisters with their peers at church, and that the other adults in the church are there uncles and aunts, spiritually speaking. And, and there's so much that both at this stage and even more so as they grow older, that they can learn from our friends that they can't learn from me and Brian. And so I think there's a, there's a massively formative role that that other folks can play in their lives um, alongside what we can do for them as parents. Yeah, yeah. Maybe taking a, a broader step back, uh, in, in my experience, a lot of good parents, solid Christians who who know their Bibles and who are plugged in to a local church and are seeking to be intentional with their kids, uh, they nevertheless would have to admit that as they look at the future and they look at the way the world is changing and the way the world has changed and, and the ways that it's the same as it's always been, the thought of raising their kids uh, in in our world, in a culture that seems increasingly hostile to the teachings of the Bible and, and to a Christian worldview, uh, makes them pretty afraid if they're being honest. So I guess I wonder, what would you say to the person maybe listening right now who, who if they were being honest, would have to say they feel that way, they feel afraid? Yeah, I, I absolutely hear that. And, and I don't want to minimize that sense. And I think often people have a fear that there's such a strong cultural tie that nothing they can say to their kids is going to make any difference. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true from the scriptures, and I don't think it's true actually from current data. 
so it was a survey um, put out by the Pew Forum a few years ago, which was looking at uh, the, the generational um, sort of carryover from parents to children. And, and to be fair, this was, you know, they're, they're looking at data now. So this was from the last generation. Um, but I actually don't think it's it's necessarily going to be that different in this next generation. And what they found was that they looked at um, people who were raised Catholic in America, people who were raised Protestant in America, and people who were raised non-religious. And what they found was that, that people raised Catholic had a 60% chance of still identifying as Catholic as adults. So 40% of Catholics, raised, people raised Catholic, no longer identify as Catholic as adults. Probably nobody's surprised by that. They found that among Protestants, 80% who were raised Protestant still identified as Protestant as adults. Again, this isn't charting like church tenors or other things that might be better indicators of you know, serious faith, but just to kind of compare like with like 80% of Protestants. And then they looked at people raised non-religious. And people raised non-religious had a 60% chance of still identifying as non-religious as adults. So actually just, just the, the same retention rate as Catholics, which didn't sound too great, is the retention rate for non-religious, people raised non-religious in America. And there's an, a growing body of evidence um, being led, actually, by folks over at the Harvard School of Public Health, not far from where I am right now, that um, there are significant mental and physical health benefits to regular religious participation. It's things like study a couple of years showed that, that women who go to church once a week or more are five times less likely to kill themselves than women who never attend. Uh, they put out recent research on, on deaths from despair, which it looks at suicide, drug abuse, and alcohol-related deaths. And, and there's a significant differential between people who are regularly engaged in religious community uh, and people who are not when it comes to all of those things. Um, th the reality is, and, and even atheist social psychologists will acknowledge this, the reality is that we humans tend to flourish when we believe that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves, that we're connected to something much bigger than ourselves. And when we are in regular religious community, and, and this, this idea that, that my generation was raised on, that really the world would just be better off without religion, and if we get any kind of shed all this religious stuff, we would all emerge as these you know, properly virtuous, um, modern, um, scientifically literate people. And I think you know, one of the big shocks to the, the secular system is, is how untrue that seems to be. Um, and, and a significant proportion of those, going back to that Pew survey, who were uh, raised in non-religious times actually become religious as adults and they tend to become Christians. Uh, and so whereas we can see in the news, you know, all this talk of like the category of nuns, people who would check on if they were given a census form of like, you know, which religion are you affiliated with, that, that category has grown substantially but it's actually a very unstable category. There's a lot of switching in and a switching out. And especially generationally, there's a lot of switching in and switching out. So I was talking to a sociologist a couple of years ago, and she was saying it's actually quite hard to find three generations of non-religious folk uh, in America. Uh, and so um, should, we, should we have the concern that we could raise kids who, who end up walking away from Christianity? Yes. Should our neighbours who are nice, convinced, secular, like liberal atheist folk have the concern that they might raise kids who end up becoming Christians? Also, yes. So what would you say are some of the biggest challenges to the Christian faith and maybe more generally a Christian biblical worldview facing young people today? 
I think one of the big challenges we have is this idea that's that's deep in people's bones often that Christianity is at heart a white Western religion. Uh, and that whereas, you know, there may be other folks who, who are also Christians, that there is some sort of um, you know, strong center of gravity uh, that is uh, allied with one particular culture and one particular racial background. And I think especially as um, you know, our society is grappling more and more with the history of systemic racism in America and, and um, things that uh, maybe some folks hoped had been uh, figured out years ago really haven't been figured out. And, and so I think there's, you know, there's so much kind of turmoil and, and, and confusion um, in society more broadly. And, and, and increasingly, um, you know, the, a younger generation of, of people um, are rightly recognizing the need for racial justice and seeing the, the ways in which Christians have been complicit in racism um, for centuries and, and for, for decades uh, can feel like a strong motivator to abandoning Christianity. Now, I actually think that, that whereas that data is, is present and important, that we, we actually we also need to see the much bigger picture which is showing us that from, from the scriptures that Christianity has always been multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic, uh, that there have been individual black believers that we see um, from, from the very first in, in the book of Acts, um, and that the, the idea of love across race, racial and cultural and ethnic difference is not something that's really a kind of secular progressive idea, first and foremost. It's actually a Christian idea. It's actually something that Jesus gave to us in the first place. So I think um, that, as with many other questions, is one where if, if you look from a distance, it can look like a defeat of a Christianity. But actually, if you look more closely, because a reason to believe. And if we look globally, we see that Christianity is, is the most diverse belief system in the world by a long chalk, but also the largest, but it's, it's the most racially, culturally, ethnically, socio, uh, sociologically diverse. Um, and if we look in America, we also find that uh, black Americans are actually significantly more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers, um, far more likely to go to church regularly, to read the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. That, that the idea that the, the conclusion we should draw from, uh, from the, the, the sinful racism that has sadly infected um, many you know, white churches historically the conclusion we should draw from that is not that we should therefore throw Christianity out. Um, I think we, we need to listen more carefully to the, the voices of faithful black believers. Um, but I do think that's a, a very important question, one that, that both we and our kids will be will be grappling with. Um, I think science continues to be an important question um, for, for kids to be equipped when it comes to, and again, recognising that rather than belonging to atheism, that science, the modern scientific project was from the first a Christian project, um, not an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God, but actually the, the folks who first came up with what we now call modern science uh, did say because they believed in, in the God of the Bible. Um, and that there are many leading scientists today in all sorts of disciplines that have supposedly discredited Christianity are actually very serious Christians too. Um, and then I think there's a whole set of ideas around gender and sexuality touched on, on some of them, but I think one that's going to be increasingly pertinent in, in the coming years is uh, questions around transgender identities. Um, and, and what does it mean for us to say, for me to say I am a woman or for you to say you are a man? Um, and I, I think what's, what's interesting here is that there's actually a, a lot of 
uh, ideological conflict kind of going on between secular folk on these questions uh, in a way that when the, the pressing issue was around gay marriage, um, there was actually you know relatively little um, sort of conflict within um, you know the, the communities of, of sexual uh, secular liberal folk. Um, actually, the transgender movement has a, is a very different feel because traditional feminists are raising real concerns about some of the um, some of the ways in which transgender um, thinking is is playing out. Uh, actually, traditional gay and lesbian advocates as well have been raising some real concerns about that. So I think there's a it's going to be an interesting few years um, for, for all of us, regardless of, of what beliefs we bring um, to these questions in the first place. Um, but I think in order to equip our children well, we need them both to see that male and female are um, biological and, and more importantly, theological categories that the Bible gives us. And we need them to see why, which, again, is, um, as far as I can see from the scriptures, uh, very much connected to, to the picture of Jesus and, and, and the church, and that we need to teach that hard to our kids. And I think we also need to recognise the ways in which we... Um, we can buy into cultural stereotypes as if they were scriptural truths and how uh, as Christians, we've had a history of doing that to where we can make somebody feel alienated from, from their biological sex, not because there's necessarily any reason for them to be, but because we've sort of put some extra non-biblical um, clothing around the idea of what it means to, to be a man or a woman. And so I think we need to, uh, you know, look carefully at that and see where are we teaching our children things that are actually biblical? Um, and where are we teaching them things that, that we've just sort of inherited from the previous generation or two and that we were clinging on to as if they were biblical when they're not? So I think there's, there's going to be some important introspection that we can do there alongside our children. Um, but, but I don't think we're going to come out of that saying, yes, male and female aren't you know, real theological categories because I, I think scripturally they absolutely are, but we will maybe understand what those things mean in, in a more biblically grounded way. Hmm. Well, and it seems like that you mentioned the issue of race, we have the issue of science, uh, just in general, faith, religious faith, and, and the the ways that it seems like we're, we're hardwired as humans for faith in, in certain respects, the data that would suggest that. But it does seem like one of the biggest cultural flashpoints in the U.S. right now is related to sexuality and gender. And as, as you said, it's a very complicated, multifaceted conversation that um, there's a lot of different sides, uh, so to speak. But it does seem like that's um, when I think about the way that our culture engages on these issues and the messages that are coming at children in particular, uh, whether it's movies or music or social media or even schools today, it seems like there's a big effort, a big push to normalize a lot of these ideas and behaviors among young people in particular. Uh, it seems like there's there's a growing, people have talked about a growing secular orthodoxy in relation to some of these issues. And, and young people are the primary target in a lot of ways for that new orthodoxy. Uh, and so I wonder... Uh, as you think about this in issue in particular, uh, how do you how do you think about uh, raising children uh, in light of just the the push towards normalization that we see kind of in different spheres all around us? I think as with every other way in which being a Christian puts you out of joint 
with those around you. That, that Christianity was built for this, actually. Uh, it, we, we tend to think that the complex sort of sexual ethical questions that arise today are things that, you know, maybe started in the 60s and have become much more pronounced now. And in, and in some sort of localised way, you can say that that's true. But if you go back to the first century and you look at what the prevailing cultural norms were then, at least for men, and you know, in one of the big Christian revolutions um, started by Jesus was, was actually treating women as equal to men. And that wasn't an assumption that the Greco-Roman uh, world was making. Um, but I think we need to recognise, yeah, that Christianity was not born into a world where marriage was one man and one woman for life. It was born into a world where it was perfectly normal and acceptable for a man to sleep with women he wasn't married to, men he wasn't married to, male or female slaves, children. Honest, I mean, like the the sexual abuse of children in the Greco-Roman world is is horrific and, and eye-opening. Um, you think of the Emperor Nero, who admittedly was completely crazy and and didn't you know I'm not saying he represented the norms of his day, um, but he dressed up as a woman and married another man at one point. Um, and this was at, at the time that the New Testament was was being written, and so I, I think we we can take courage from the fact that actually the first Christians lived in a world where they weren't normal for keeping to Christian sexual ethics, and, and many of them had had actually come fresh out of that world. I mean, Paul tells us in First Corinthians, you, you know, listen, number of things. Um, for, that would mean you, you you didn't inherit the kingdom of God, and then he's including um, homosexual relationships, and then he says, and this is what some of you were, um, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus. And I think we need to not we we don't need to see ourselves as sort of needing some kind of broad protection from a cultural majority that will be on our side. Uh, we need to be followers of Jesus who are reaching out. To those around us um, who could be in all sorts of um, lifestyles or, or, or situations or um, you know attractional patterns or um, you know ways uh, ways of being that um, that may not fit with being a follower of Jesus, and we need to invite them in. I mean, I think of Jesus telling the religious people of his day, "Look, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you," and I think we need to. Um, we need to recognise that that Jesus isn't uh, intimidated by today's cultural trends, nor is he asking us to go and, you know, shout loudly against all those folks out there. He's actually asking us to go and and call out for those folks out there and to welcome them in. Um, and I think that's the the posture that we need for our, our kids to have. We, we don't need to be afraid um, of anything other than losing uh stopping following jesus that's the, that's the only thing we really need to be afraid of for ourselves we don't need to be afraid of um you know the, the the big bad world out there um that's the world for which jesus came to die and so we need to to humbly recognizing as paul did that we are the foremost of sinners um that, that jesus came into the world to save even people as bad as us we need to have that humble posture as we go out into the world and invite others um, to find their hope in him. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure.
That was Rebecca McLaughlin on preparing our teens for a post-Christian world. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you tell your friends and leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.